Hello, friends! This is Aparna Nincherla, and it's time again for an episode of Selected Shorts Too Hot for Radio. It's the show that brings you all the naughty body stories that would make our public radio audience feel quite haughty. Of course, you hotheads are way more likely to lift a colorful bit of erotica from a story and drop it in your wedding vows. That's what we like about you. And we're so excited to hear about how your honeymoon was on the playa. Speaking of marriage, today's episode is about things that won't last forever. Things we enjoy because they are fleeting. A walk in the sunshine, a scoop of strawberry ice cream, a list of things we enjoy because they are fleeting. Sometimes these are things you longed for but you fear might never return. A phone call from a great lost love, the scent of your mother's lilac perfume. Share. And sometimes these things are entirely, entirely unexpected. That's where today's story, Roxanne Gay's Men on Bikes, glides in. Stories about women flipping the patriarchy on its head are as old as Lysistrata, but they're sadly as potent as they were centuries ago. Thankfully, many of these stories are perversely funny, and it's hard to be furious when you're laughing. And I'm not saying a woman's world would be 100% better, but maybe like 95.8% better. Sure, there might be more cat photos or catty comments, but probably a lot fewer nuclear arms scares and terrible fart jokes. Our fart jokes are excellent. Thank you very much. Roxanne Gay is a writer we love. She's got a wide-ranging skill set from short stories to editorials, from novels to nonfiction. Her titles include Bad Feminist and Difficult Women, as well as Hunger, A Memoir of My Body. And for those still left on Twitter, well, no introduction needed. We've also featured her story, How, on an earlier episode of Too Hot for Radio. Gay's playful story somehow confronts alcoholism, matrimony, masculinity, the nuclear family, and the failure of the American dream in under 10 pages. And it's funny. That's what we're going to get into after the reading, hotheads. Finding comedy in unfunny subjects. Gay's piece was published in an issue of McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, in which all the authors covered a story in the way a musician might cover a famous song. And Gay took a famous Margaret Atwood story titled Rape Fantasies as her inspiration. Both Rape Fantasies and Men on Bikes are about imagination, revenge, and joking about subjects that make people uneasy. That's where my guest, the comic Allison Leiby, comes in. She's a writer and co-producer on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, co-hosts the podcast Ruined, and writes funny pieces for outlets, including The New York Times. Today, though, we'll be talking a lot about her solo show, Oh God, a show about abortion. It's been a big success in New York and on tour because it does exactly what it promises. It makes us laugh about a subject people aren't prepared to laugh about. So that's after the reading. But first... Let me give any sensitive souls a preview of potentially offensive content. Warning. There's the suggestion that a man might masturbate. Also, winking boobs and the idea that porn exists. You'll be fine. Reading the story is a great friend of Selected Shorts who has performed as host and actor all over the U.S. 
She's best known for her longtime role in Malcolm in the Middle and works regularly in films such as Killing Eleanor and on stage in plays including Long Day's Journey into Night. Now here's Jane Kaczmarek performing Roxane Gay's story, Men on Bikes. The way it's being talked about in the papers, you'd think the men in town had grown wings and all flown away. Better yet, you'd think they'd all done something we could all be proud of. The news had been on the front page nearly every day for as long as I can remember. Nowadays, we just turn to the second page to hear the rest of the world because the front page, they reserve that for our men and what they've gotten up to. No headlines about war or the economy or things politicians have said, nothing like that. Instead, every day, the front page talks about how eventually every man in town ended up on a bicycle. Right? That doesn't seem like something people should talk about. There's nothing new or interesting about men on bicycles, right? I suppose it's the drinking that got everyone riled up and righteous. I was playing poker with some of the other wives, having quite a good go of it, a healthy stack of chips in front of me, ace, king of hearts in my hand, and two aces showing on the flop. They were talking about how they were losing their husbands to bicycle maintenance. It, it's the craziest thing, right? There's lots of talk about gears and brake hoods and spokes and forks. It was like the men decided because they were riding bikes, they were now bike experts. There was even a new section in the paper, 10 weekly tips for keeping your bicycle in tip-top shape. It started with Dean Shavers, the first to lose his job at the plant. Dean had seven kids, all under the age of 10, and sitting on the couch watching talk shows with those sticky kids crawling or running all around him, it was maddening. The only time he had a moment's peace was after the older kids went to school and the younger kids went down for a nap. In the quiet of that precious hour or two, he cradled warm cans of beer, taking slow, careful sips until the younger children woke up and the older ones came home, their furious energy now dulled and manageable. Then his wife Marnie's car broke down and there was no money to fix it. So he had to take her to work and pick her up every day. Marnie still worked at the plant because she had nimble fingers and she was real good with machines. It's like she understood them, her supervisor said during Marnie's annual review. Dean was mostly sober in the morning when he took Marnie to work, but in the evening when he was well into his case of Coors Light, his expanding gut soft and pliable against the steering wheel, he had a hard time finding his way to the place even though he worked there for nearly 19 years. Marnie didn't say anything. Dean was a lazy drunk, but he never got coarse with her. He never catted around with barflies. It wasn't her place to get involved with all that. Sometimes as they lay in bed, Marnie would sigh as Dean sweated out the beer he spent all day drinking, their bedroom air thickening with the yeast. She'd say, this is not what we promised each other. And Dean would just grunt and pretend to be asleep. The night of their anniversary, Dean picked Marnie up from work and they went to the penalty box for drinks and dinner while Marnie's sister stayed home with the kids. Dean wore a clean pair of khakis and his favorite bowling shirt. Marnie changed in the locker room at work and wore the only nice dress she owned. Black, simple lines, low scooped back. Dean whistled when Marnie slid into the car and leaned in to kiss her husband. He drew her close for a wet, boozy kiss, whispering, you are gonna get it tonight. <laughs> After they pulled apart, Marnie crossed her legs and laughed. Yeah, we'll see how long you stay awake, big boy. <laughs> Most of their friends were at the penalty box. 
There weren't too many options in town on a Friday night. After greasy burgers, Marnie played pool with Belinda Rucker, who went by Bindi and was the sexiest woman in town when she leaned over a pool table, her cue aimed carefully at a corner pocket. Dean sat at the bar with Bindi's husband, Tucker. Tucker Rucker went by Trucker and had also been laid off from the plant. It was late, so they shifted quietly from beer to gin to whiskey, giggling like little boys each time the bartender set fresh drinks in front of them. She was young, she had perky little breasts that seemed to wink as they swayed lightly behind her tight t-shirt. Dean and Trucker talked about the terrible coffee at the unemployment office, the videos they were forced to watch each week, teaching them about new career paths they might pursue, office work, phlebotomy, sanitation. My fingers are too damn big for most work, Dean said, and Trucker nodded. They were both men with very large hands, could palm a bowling ball with room to spare. By last call, Dean could barely keep his roomy eyes open. He leaned heavily against Marnie as they walked to the car, listing from side to side. She tried to take the keys from her husband, but he had too much pride. I am a man, he said, and I'm going to drive my woman home, and that's when I'm going to really give it to her. <laughs> Marnie rolled her eyes. The only thing Dean was going to give her was a hard time as she rolled him into bed and tried to undress him. She knew exactly where this night was headed. They had been down this road before. Marnie tried again for the keys, but Dean spun away and stumbled to the car. Marnie shouted, you are not killing me tonight. Pulled her coat around her and began to walk home while Dean tried to fit the key into the lock. She took her time, muttering to herself about their worst anniversary yet, and planned on telling Dean when he finally made it home that they might not see their next. In the morning, Marnie slowly opened her eyes and realized she was alone in bed. The house was quiet, which immediately set her on edge. She padded into the living room where five of her children were sitting in front of the TV. Dean was nowhere to be found. It was several hours later that she finally checked her cell phone, having deliberately ignored it all night, and found several increasingly frantic messages from Dean begging her to come down to the police station to bail him out after the pigs had pulled him over. Marnie would have laughed but knew that they could hardly afford whatever the bail was. And then there would be a lawyer and who knows what else. She went to the back porch, lit a cigarette, ignoring the stern look of disapproval from her children, their greasy faces pressed to the glass door. He can sit there for a while longer, she thought. It was a warm day, the sky was clear. She enjoyed the sun on her arms for three cigarettes and went down to the police station only when she was good and ready. Dean was contrite when he saw his wife standing in the lobby, one hand on her hip, her lips stretched into a tight line. I am so sorry, he said. I should have listened to you. He wanted to say more, but his mouth was sour and his head was thick, and the looks Marnie was giving him were making it hard to think. Yeah, you're damn right you're sorry, Marnie said. This is the first and last time you will be arrested for a goddamn DUI. A DUI, Dean? Really? She held out her hand, palm up. Give me your driver's license. Dean blinked. What? Marnie snapped her fingers. I did not stutter. Dean sighed, reached into his pocket for his beat-up wallet, damp dollar bills, receipts spilling out. His hands trembled as he handed his wife his license. He needed a drink. She tucked the license into her bra and turned on her heel. 
I'll let you know when you can drive again, she said over her shoulder. You can walk home. Walk home, Dean did. And people stared because we don't talk in this town, not really, even though this is a small sort of place. Marnie had a temper, we all knew that, but we couldn't imagine what Dean had done to be trudging home and looking so sorry. That night, Dean went out to the garage he had been meaning to clean for months, well, years, if we'll be honest. With Marnie giving him the silent treatment and the kids looking at him suspiciously, it was the perfect time to organize the abandoned toys and hunting equipment and lawn games and his prized collection of dirty magazines when Playboy was good. For a few minutes, Dean allowed himself the quiet pleasure of flipping through the glossy pages featuring women he would never dare touch but sometimes imagined when he was on top of Marnie, who was a look herself, but, but different because, well, she had hair in certain places, for one. These girls, they were so smooth, like dolls. And yes, Dean realized it was kind of maybe abnormal to think of them that way, but he did wonder what it would feel like to slide into one of those slick skin dolls. Oh, he wondered. And then he stopped all that because he was in enough trouble. The last thing he needed was Marnie finding him drooling in the garage, his dick sticking out of his pants. After a few hours of steady work, the garage was finally starting to look like someplace you could park a car in. Dean was working up a masculine sweat and feeling pretty good about himself. Then he found his old 10-speed. It still worked. Dean took it for a lazy spin around the block and found that he could hold a beer in one hand and the handlebar with the other and still make progress. He was going to get around. Marnie could keep his damn driver's license. Maybe he could finally get in shape. Maybe he'd get some of those abdominal muscles Marnie was always nagging him about. And then she would be the one pawing at him in the dark, her breathing heavy and stuttered. Within a few days, Dean added a white wicker basket to the front of his bicycle because sometimes a man needed to carry things. Marnie stood in the driveway watching his work, arms across her chest. This, she said, sighing, is not what I had in mind when I confiscated your driver's license. <laughs> Dean wiped his forehead and grinned at his wife. Hey, we are going to be just fine, baby. Trucker lost his license next. It was early morning, and the previous night's drunk hadn't worn off, and somehow, on his way to the unemployment office, he ran his truck right into a large oak tree in his front yard. Bindi came out wearing nothing but her slippers and a slack robe, her heavy breasts loose against the silky material, which kind of turned Trucker on, but he didn't want anyone else getting any ideas. Put on some clothes, woman, Trucker shouted from inside the truck. Put on some damn clothes, but damn, you sure look good. <laughs> Ignoring her husband, something she did often, Bindi went around to the driver's side, leaned through the open window with her breast pressing uncomfortably against the door, and yanked the keys from the ignition. You better find yourself a bike like your buddy Dean, because there'll be no more driving for you. Drucker shrugged because he was kind of confused, and he was kind of turned on, and he couldn't remember where he was supposed to be in the first place. So he stretched out along the front seat of the cab, and he turned the radio up, even though he had a headache, because it was Travis Tritt. And he always liked the way that man's hair was cut, how it was kind of feathered on top and then long in the back. When he sobered up, Trucker wandered over to Dean's house. And Dean promised Trucker they would find him a bike, which they did at the pawn shop for only $25. Older, but red, Trucker's favorite color. 
and in fine working order. And later that afternoon, the pair pulled up to Trucker's house on their bikes. Bindi lay stretched on a lawn chair in the driveway. She pushed her sunglasses to the top of her head as they pedaled around her. What on earth is this? Trucker's bike had a little bell on it, and he kept ringing it. <laughs> I got me a bike, woman. You can keep the damn truck. Bindi laughed. Don't worry, I will. She said, whatever you are up to, just make sure you bike your ass home by dinner time. Trucker rang his bell three times, and he and Dean, who was feeling remarkably fit, went on their way, wide grins spreading across their faces as they made their way around town. Before long, all the wives in town had confiscated the keys and driver's license of their husbands. It was the right thing to do. They didn't want something terrible on their conscience while their men drank their way through complicated sorrows. Drink and bike, don't drink and drive, Esther Rollins told her husband Edgar, who complained that he was too damn old to riding a bike like some damn kid. Esther, always an efficient problem solver, found Edgar an adult tricycle because she knew Edgar couldn't ride a bike and was too proud to admit it. At first, Edgar was reluctant. Look at this thing, he said after it was delivered. And one's gonna make fun of me. Esther was unmoved. Let them. And he was right. He was all legs, his knees jammed against his elbows as he hunched over to pedal. As he rode around, people often pointed and laughing, but they weren't trying to be cruel, but Edgar on a tricycle was a spectacle. The only bike Pete Lester could find was his daughter's pink Schwinn from when she was a little girl. Trisha, the daughter, was in her first year of college now. Pete couldn't even remember why they still had the bike though he remembered teaching Trisha how to ride it, and how the first time she had wobbled for a few feet collapsed in a heap at the bottom of the driveway, screaming her head off because she had scraped her elbow. Pete's wife told him they were not spending a dime on a new bike. He wanted to grumble about being a man and making the money, but he'd been out of work for a good while and his wife couldn't tolerate that kind of nonsense anyway. He was just gonna have to make do. Pete looked ridiculous on the bike. He knew it. Everyone in town knew it. But for whatever reason, they said nothing as Pete tooled around, a big brawny man on a little girl's bike. They all thought he rode that bike with dignity. Bellamy Jones didn't even drink. Couldn't stand the taste of beer or liquor. But he quickly tired of driving on alone while his friends pedaled on their way here and there. When after Bellamy came home from work, his job as an insurance adjuster handed his keys to his wife, Gina, and said, I am done with driving. Gina frowned. You are the clumsiest person I know. You have no business riding a bike. Bellamy pointed out to the front window. If they can do it, so can I. He adjusted his blazer and strode confidently into the garage to make sure his bike tires had air, and he promptly tripped over a floor mat. <laughs> Gina decided Bellamy wasn't allowed to leave his house without elbow pads, knee pads, and his bike helmet. It was worth it, though, to join his friends on their bikes, making their way here and there. Much later, the women in town would agree there was something in the air that year. It was strange, but what a beautiful sight it was at the end of a long day. All those big, brawny men pedaling slowly on their bikes, one after the other in a never-ending line. I could cry just thinking about it. You can't understand how beautiful those men were. Hi, 
Hi, Allison. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank um, you for having me join you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing not all of our listeners have heard of your show, but the title of it kind of gives you a preview. It's called yes. Oh God, a show about abortion. Yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to preface this is a solo stand-up show about your own experience getting an abortion. Is there anything you would want an uninitiated audience to know about it, having not seen it? Maybe. I mean, that's a pretty good description of what it is. It is <laughs> okay. my personal narrative of my own experience with abortion. Uh, but it is also, um, when I started working with my director, she framed it like this. And I was like, oh, thanks for putting into words something I'd spend an hour trying to do, which is um, <laughs> that uh, the show kind of uses abortion a bit as a Trojan horse uh, mm. to really talk about uh, female identity and motherhood and kind of the cultural and biological pressures that we all are under to have children. And and I'm somebody who does not want to have children and kind of the struggles that I've had in in accepting that identity and, and you know, kind of zooming out and looking at how, you know, many women feel about the pressures to have children. Right. And I know because abortion is such a divisive subject, you know, you know, you were prepared going into it that there might be people who weren't going to be on board with what you had to say or how you said it. Yes. Did Was there anything that drove you to want to do an hour show about it or even just delve into the subject in more depth? I think like, like culturally, we do talk about abortion mm -hmm. a little bit. I mean, you and I have both seen people in comedy talk about it and it's almost always just a punchline. It's always right. just the worst thing you can think of that you need to, you know, land a joke. I'll just say abortion. That's what people, and it, you know, it always works for people and that's a bummer. But with like a subject like this, like the story we're hearing in this episode is a Roxanne Gay story called Men on Bikes. And then that's based off of a original Margaret Atwood story called Rape Fantasies. They all take on difficult subjects. When you're writing about more, you know, dicey topics, do you take a different approach? Do you ever feel worried that the audience is maybe laughing for the wrong reasons? Or do you sometimes have to just let go of some of that when you're in territory like this? I think like my, the way I like to write comedy in general is extremely detail focused. Mm -hmm, I like mm -hmm. minutia. I like the little tiny things that you talk about while you're talking about a bigger thing. And yeah. For me, it just felt like that was such a good approach for abortion because it's like, I just like, once you're laughing at how I panicked about what to wear to mine and how I ended up in leggings and I'd rather wear jeans and here's a joke about jeans. Like, yeah, it just like brings things a little bit more down to earth and, and makes it less abstract. And I think that's like when we talk about difficult topics, especially in comedy, like it's the abstraction that's so that makes it so difficult because people kind of dump their own feelings into right this loose concept of abortion whereas if i'm telling you i still had to get dressed that day and i still had to pick out an outfit and that outfit was dumb like it, it just kind <laughs> of it really like humanizes it more and i think that's what you know some difficult topics abortion at least i think is one that really just needed the humanization and the everyday so like to really drill down into the little tiny details of what everyone said and what everyone, everything that was happening around me and who wore what and what I ate later, it suddenly makes it feel less of a big thing in quotes and more just, you know, you, if you're laughing all the way along, it's hard to then at the end of the show be like, well, I didn't like that. I disagreed. And it's like, well, you laughed 
at all these stupid jokes. So right, right, right. We're kind so of I on think board. You did like it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> are you still touring the show? Or are you kind of like moving to a new phase of stand up and writing different kinds of jokes? And is that a weird transition at all? I am still doing the show when I'm looking, hopefully, to tour it. Um, more than I have been, uh, and then hopefully, you know, put it on tape so that yes. people that live in places that can't see it um, in person can see it. Yes. Uh, and so I am, and I'm also still kind of tinkering uh, with things. So I want, you know, more and more people to see it. I just went to Pittsburgh and Minneapolis and fabulous oh, cool. crowds and, and, and just such an appetite for the show. Um, but I'm also kind of transitioning into starting to write more just back to basics, you know, bits, that become chunks that, you know, like writing stand up again. And it's kind of a relief at times to not have to be yeah, like, all yeah. right, well, how do I, how do I either, how do I fit this into my abortion story or <laughs> right. like how, how am I, am I making sure that, that, you know, it's like, even though I think that the show has such a light touch and is so like silly yeah. and fun, yes. you know, there were jokes along the way that I had in there that I cut because I'm like, oh, as a comedian, sometimes I'm like, get a big laugh this logically makes a laugh and like sometimes you're like it just isn't right to say this it's even like it, not that anything was like net like i'm like oh you're playing on the fact that you're talking about something dark you're playing like and i i kind right. of had to strip all of those away and there was kind of every time i wrote something for the show or if i was like in the middle of something where like maybe something happened in the audience or the, like making sure that if i was going to riff something that like it was sensitive to like what we're doing and what's happening in this room. And it's kind of nice to know, like writing right now, I can just be like, literally I can say anything and like, it doesn't, yeah. it, it's not part of this umbrella of a, a much bigger thing. Yeah. Which no, is that, nice. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure that is quite a relief. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you. And there you have it. Jokes about abortions and a fleeting fantasy about men riding around on bikes. Next time, a limerick about global warming paired with a story about strawberry ice cream and the return of Cher. I hope, I believe, she's got one more song to sing. And maybe, just maybe, one more thong to sing. Our show is produced by Jennifer Brennan and Mary Shimkin. Our podcast producer and editor is Colleen Pellisier. This episode was recorded by Miles B. Smith. Matthew Love is our consulting producer. Our theme song is by Poddington Bear. I'm Aparna Nancherla. Thanks for joining us for Selected Shorts Too Hot for Radio.